welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. As we continue our study in 1 Timothy, please keep in mind the primary purpose that Paul has in writing. His primary purpose is, a, is addressing errors in the Ephesian church and instructing them in how they should be conducting themselves in the household or the family of God. Because a family only runs smoothly if everyone understands and knows their roles and responsibilities and then joyfully work together for the good of the family. But if selfishness is allowed to thrive in a family, then the family unit will disintegrate from the inside out. The church in Ephesus was about to fall apart because of this selfishness. And Paul has sent Timothy and written this letter in order to correct what was broken in the Ephesian church. Two weeks ago, we finished our look into how the church can best serve widows. But today we will see that the church also has a responsibility to minister to the elders. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 together. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Let's go to the Lord and ask Him for His blessing this morning as we come before His Word in humility and ask for wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that we can cling to it. I thank You that it's not my job or anyone else's to come up with better wisdom. I thank You that we can trust your wisdom, that it is for your glory and for our good, and that you will save a people for your name's sake, that you are building your kingdom. And I pray that we as a local church, that as we follow you, that you would bless us, that we would get to see and participate in what you are doing in the earth for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning of this chapter, Paul again calls on the church to honor widows. The Greek word translated honor, as we discussed, means to behold and value highly. To honor someone is to set a high price on their well-being. You are in fact saying, they are worthy of my personal sacrifice. The implication being in the beginning of the chapter that the widows in question would often be in desperate need of financial provision now that their husband had passed away. The reason the church was to financially provide for these godly widows in their time of need is because it accurately reflects the compassion of God for the most vulnerable among His children. Honoring widows is putting hands and feet 
to the compassion of God. Amen. It puts on public display the fact that the church understands who God says He is, and then we are living according to that knowledge of Him. It shows that our hearts and minds are in line or in sync with the Spirit of God within us and with His Word revealed to us. And in 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, we again are called to honor financially a group of people within our church, but for a different reason. Paul says in verse 17, to honor elders or pastors, but it is not because of compassion for a fellow believer who is destitute, like we saw earlier with widows. Instead, the honor that is to be given to elders in the church is in return for their excellent labor. The beginning of verse 17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. As we've seen previously, the term elder, back in, uh, as we discussed back in chapter 3, when we talked about overseer, bishop, pastor, we, we believe here at Agape that these, this term elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd, bishop, um, they all refer to the same office. That is our belief. It is also our belief that we should desire a plurality of elders in our church, which means more than one. We desire to have more than one. These elders would then lead and teach the church as an elder team or as a council of elders, if you want to put it that way. And we see this model in several places in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Timothy 4.14, a council of elders laid their hands on Timothy and commissioned him for service. In Acts 14.23, it says that the elders, plural, were appointed in every church. In James 5.14, it says Christians who are bedridden are instructed to call for the elders, plural, of their local church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil. In Hebrews 13, 17, Christians are instructed to obey their leaders, again, plural, and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. This does not mean that a church is in sin if it only has one elder, but the goal of our church should be to have a plurality of qualified men who lead and teach us. In Ephesus, there seems to have been a council of elders. We read about the elders in the church of Ephesus in Acts. But the majority of these men, if not all of them, most likely worked regular jobs in the marketplace and supported themselves while they served the church. In this passage, it does sound like the elders were being honored to some degree. They may have received some financial return from the church or an occasional gift. But Paul says to the church in Ephesus to consider carefully the men leading you as elders. If there are any among them who are leading you well or excellently, then realize that they are worthy of double or greater honor. Amen. This is Paul's way of saying not just that the church um, should esteem them in their minds highly, but instead that the church should pay these elders according to their excellent leadership. So it's according to their excellent leadership. Paul then narrows in on a very important aspect of leading well. He says to give double honor, especially to those who labor in preaching and teaching. 
By this we can see that the additional pay is not an act of compassion on the part of the church. Paul is clearly saying that these men labor, which means to toil, to work to the point of exhaustion. They labor in the word and then turn around and make you the beneficiaries of all their hard work. The church, the members of the church are the recipients of are the recipients and the ones who benefit from the elders' toil through their leading, preaching, and teaching. The the elders worthy of double honor are those who lead excellently and work very hard at teaching. And Paul says that these elders are worthy. He's saying again that their hard work is rightly deserving of payment. It is not charity. It is not a love offering. It is not an optional choice on the part of the local church. Amen. When you join a local church, you are agreeing to give financially so that the lights can stay on in our service, so that we can rescue destitute women or widows in our Christian family, and so that elders who pour out their lives for you with excellent labor are given fair payment. To willfully do anything else It's like having a gardener who works very hard going above and beyond what you should hope for in a day's labor, but then you pay him less than minimum wage at the end of the day. It's simply unjust, even in the minds of most unbelievers. We know this is what Paul is saying because he goes on in verse 18 to say, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And... The laborer deserves his wages. The first quote, um, Paul first quotes Deuteronomy 25, which was part of God's Old Testament laws on doing justice for the Israelites. There was a practice among the pagans in the land to muzzle or close the mouth of the ox as it toiled for the farmer. The ox would go round and round all day, crushing grain stalks under its feet in order to separate the grain from the chaff But in order to maximize his profits, the farmer would close the mouth of the ox so that it wouldn't eat any of the grain as it it labored. Supposedly, the ox would then later be sent to pasture in order to search for grass on its own, in its own time. In all honesty, this this doesn't sound like like that, all that wicked of a practice in and of itself. It just sounds, you know, if you just looked at it plainly just sounds like good business. But for the Israelites, this was most likely intended as a sign or reminder to them of the difference between how the Israel, the pagans did business and how Israel was supposed to love their neighbors. It was a sign to them of the difference of people without God and God's people, those who belong to God. In fact, Paul goes on to explain this concept thousands of years later in 1 Corinthians 9. He says to the Corinthian church, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? 
It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul implies with that last statement that his sowing of spiritual things in the hearts of the Corinthians was of far greater benefit to them than if Paul had spent all of his days sowing grain seeds in their fields, making them financially more wealthy. Through his spiritual ministry to them, they had become eternally wealthier than any pagan landowner. Amen. In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul also quotes the Lord Jesus Christ. During his earthly ministry, Jesus sent out 72 witnesses ahead of him into the towns that he planned to visit, telling them not to take a wagon full of provisions with them, but instead to go out spreading the good news of the kingdom of heaven trusting that those who receive the gospel will provide for their every need. Jesus gives the reason why these messengers of the gospel should be supported by the receivers of the gospel. He says in Luke 10, 7, verse 7, For the laborer deserves his wages. Jesus says that a messenger of the gospel is a laborer and is just as deserving a physical return for their labor as any other worker. The hearers of the word have benefited from another's labor, and they are responsible to make a return to the laborer. This does require a change of thinking for many people. Some people assume that the elders of a local church are paid by the government, or given their income through a distant denominational council somewhere. It is possible you have experienced this in another denomination, but this was not the pattern of the New Testament church, and it is not how our church functions. For a church to function biblically, the expectation must be that the members of the church are the ones who collectively honor their elders financially. Because the members are the beneficiaries of the elders' excellent labor. Any other expectation would be like coming to a restaurant and sitting down with your family and eating a well-prepared, nutritious meal. But then when the bill is presented to you, you start looking around the rest of the restaurant to see who else is going to pay the bill. If you were the restaurant owner, or the cook, or the waitress, you would say, that's unjust. That's just not right. But is it somehow more acceptable to be fed and nourished spiritually at a local church, but then walk out, leaving the bill for others to pay? We all go to restaurants or stores and pay for food to nourish our bodies, The price is sometimes high and it seems like it just keeps going up, but we still pay because we highly value the nourishment of our physical bodies. There's no question about it. But every member of every church must from time to time ask themselves, how highly do I value the nourishment of my my own soul? The spiritual nourishment of my own soul. 
What price am I willing to pay in order to grow into mature manhood or womanhood as part of the household of God? The financial price of living the Christian life is very high at times. Just a brief glimpse at the teaching of Jesus would make you wonder how any of his followers could ever become rich or wealthy. Jesus said, said in his life here on earth, Give to those who ask of you, and love your neighbor as yourself. He told one man who loved wealth, Sell all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And if Nicodemus had publicly followed Jesus, he would have been stripped of his high-ranking position and pay. Think of how much money you could easily steal or defraud from the government if you lied on your business tax returns. Think of how much wealthier you could be if you never got married or, and never had kids and worked on Sundays instead of coming to church. The cost of living the Christian life is very high. But that's exactly how it's supposed to be. Amen. Because we are the people who have been called out from the world and unto God. We are the people who put on public display the surpassing worth of knowing Christ by the way we spend our time, energy, and money. We collectively say in all areas of our life that Jesus surpasses anything this world has to offer. My life must proclaim that I'm investing in knowing Him and being a part of His kingdom, the kingdom of God. Another sobering reality is that we are only stewards in this life of the things that all belong to God. Our very breath is on loan to us from our Master. It does not belong to us. And He, our Master, is watching to see how we will steward the things that belong to Him. Do you believe He is going to look down with favor and bless us if we clench our fists around the things that belong to Him and then try to keep it from Him? Or should we instead spend our time, energy, and money the way our Master instructs us to? with generosity, selflessness, and joy in giving. As our church grows and we, Lord willing, move toward appointing elders for the first time in this church who will lead and teach us the question of can we pay our elders will come up. If we are blessed with the plurality of elders, the question will also be asked, which ones should we pay and how much should we pay them? 1 Timothy 5 does not give us all the information we'll need to make those decision, decisions, but this passage does lay the groundwork for our church to have an accurate understanding of how much God values the elder who leads excellently and labors. He toils in preaching and teaching. God values that elder so much that he would call on the rest of the local church to pay that man so that his proven excellent labor can continue to increase Amen. for the glory of God 
and for the good of his people. Now practically, our church does not bring in enough resources to fully pay an excellent elder. If we appoint an elder in the future or in the near future, the most likely outcome will be that these elders will continue in their regular occupations while serving the church in their additional time. They will be, in a sense, to a great degree, be working for the church, laboring and toiling for free. And if anyone, any men in this congregation are feeling the desire in their heart, the God-given desire to lead in the local church, to lead and teach, then if you're serving in this church, it's going to be very much for free. And it's, it's good for us to realize that as we approach this time in our church's life. But the goal for us as a church and, and as members is that we would so value the nourishment of our own souls that we would rejoice in giving financially so that one day we can call excellent elders to full-time service in this local church. Paul points out in verses 17 through 18 the church's responsibility to give double honor for excellent labor. But in verse 19, he comes, uh, he changes direction and points out another way that the church is to minister to the elders. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Here Paul repeats another Old Testament command regarding doing justice. And in Deuteronomy 19 we read, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall, shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. A lying tongue was all too common in, all, in the Old Testament, in Paul's day and still to this day. And elders who preach the word of God without fearing man are often the target of false accusation. Amen. Think, how, think of how damaging lies are today. If you own a vehicle dealership, imagine what would happen if your competitors start, start spreading rumors in, in town that you have a reputation for changing the odometer readings in the cars and selling cars that fall apart. If that rumor catches, you might have to close your business. Or if you work as an employee at a company, imagine one of your coworkers going to the boss and accusing you of embezzling funds. Whether it's true or not, that is just a lot of heat coming your way for a significant period of time. These lies are damaging enough, but now imagine the damage caused by a disgruntled member of a local church who spreads the rumor that one of the elders is having an affair. Due to the delicious nature of gossip, among most people, the rumor spreads like wildfire, and by the time the elders of the church even hear about it, 
it seems like half the community is already convinced that elder so-and-so from your church is having an affair, and the other elders in the church have blatantly allowed him to continue in his office. Clearly, that is an ungodly, unbiblical church. It is at this point that the elders of the church begin the long and painful process of picking up the pieces and trying to restore the good name of the church. After much effort, they finally figure out where the rumor started, if they're lucky, if they're fortunate. And then they question the accuser in order to find out the facts. Come to find out the accusation was based on nothing more than that that member was upset and he happened to see one of the elders talking to a lady in his church in the spar parking lot. They were standing in the spar parking lot having a conversation because they ran into each other. The accusation was unfounded. So does that mean that everything is resolved and back to normal? No. Not by a long shot. The elder's wife, though previously confident of his faithfulness, has been spiraling into doubt for the last couple weeks. The name of the church is being dragged through the mud by the community. Unbelievers are saying to themselves, See, they're no better off than any of us, the hypocrites. And the elder himself may decide it's best for the church if he removes himself from office in an attempt to restore people's confidence in it. Proverbs 18.8 says that gossip is like delicious morsels of food. Gossip is like a freshly baked chocolate chip cookie right out of the oven. And the gossiper is putting it right in your face saying, have you ever tried one of these? It's contrary to our nature to jerk away and say, get that out of my face. It's contrary to our nature. But that is what Paul is calling the church to do. In verse 19, the word admit, so he's talking about do not admit an accusation. This word admit or receive is the Greek word paradekomai. It means to welcome with personal interest. This word leaves the impression that the hearer of of the accusation was more than happy to hear the terrible news about the elder. The front door of his heart was standing wide open, and he rejoiced to welcome in suspicion and doubt. Paul says, do not welcome into your midst an accusation against an elder. The church must not be surprised when accusations are raised against one of their elders. Paul here implies that false accusations will come. And every senior elder I've I've heard speak on this topic affirms the same in their own life and over the span of their ministry. If false accusations will come, and and if a false accusation has the potential to destroy men, families, and churches, then the church must guard their own hearts and reject the temptation to hear gossip with joy. The practical implication being that if someone comes to you and accuses one of your spiritual leaders of sin, stop the conversation there and call up your elder 
and asked him if he would mind joining in on the conversation. If you do that enough times, it will amaze you how the gossipers around you will scatter like cockroaches because the light of the truth has been turned on. Paul is calling on the church to protect themselves from this danger by treating elders like they would treat any other Christian brother or father. There's no way you are going to let a beloved family member's name be falsely dragged through the mud. There's no way you are going to welcome that piece of gossip into your heart with gladness. Rather, it's going to be brokenness. There's no way you're going to sit back and idly watch while a gossiper is spreading rumors about your dad or a brother or a sister or a mother. In most cases, you would, ins- you would instantly pick up the phone and call your loved one, hoping beyond hope that the accusation was not true and wanting to vindicate your family member, if at all possible. If that is the case then it makes sense that members of a local church would do the same for one another. After all, aren't we called and aren't we the family of God? Paul says the family of God is to minister to the elders of the church by refusing to welcome these types of accusations. But that does not mean that the church covers up sin. In fact, One of the greatest ways you can minister to the elders of your church is by rebuking sinning elders in the presence of all. Paul says in verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In context, Paul is specifically addressing elders who are caught in disqualifying sin. Although some translations emphasize the ongoing nature of the sin by saying those who persist in sin, the point is that these elders have committed sins that violate the qualifications of their office. They have violated the sacred trust placed upon them, and the only godly response is for the other elders to publicly bring it before the entire church. Going back to our previous example, someone comes to you with an accusation against one of the elders. It may even be his wife who is heartbroken about the harsh way he is treating her and the kids in private. It wouldn't be the first time. At this point, there is only one witness, his wife. There's only one witness who's come forward. Is Paul saying that you are to stop up your ears and ignore her because there are no other witnesses to their home life? I don't believe this could possibly be Paul's meaning. Instead, the one to whom the accusation was made should immediately go to the elder accused and seek out the truth, hoping with all of their heart that this is just a misunderstanding that can quickly be resolved. But in this example, the elder is questioned and he becomes defensive and is dismissive of his wife and anyone who will listen to her. Sadly, the other elders in this example, the other elders of the church, come to realize 
that their brother is in sin and has disqualified himself from leading and teaching God's church. So what do they do now? Do they quietly allow him to retire? Do they allow him to simply move to another church and take that somewhere else? Do they internally, just amongst themselves, agree to give him a sabbatical and then bring him back later? These are all commonly practiced solutions to flagrant sin, flagrant sin among elders in modern day churches. Whether an elder has been verbally abusive to his co-workers or if he had had an affair, it doesn't seem to make much of a difference. This is a common practice. And there is a tendency to hush up sin among leaders, if at all possible, in some attempt to keep to spare the name of the church some um, insult. But Paul says that the most loving thing you can do for elders, for the church, and for the glory of God is to publicly rebuke them in the presence of the entire congregation. This word rebuke means to lay out the evidence and prove the guilt. This process will obviously look differently depending on whether the elder is living in repentance and submission after exposure of his sin, or if he is still in rebellion. But whether or not there is repentance, disqualifying sin in an elder must be rebuked before the entire congregation so that the rest of the elders may stand in fear. Elders are just men. They may be faithful men, but they are just men. And no matter how mature you are, there is still the temptation to act the fool. Whether it be the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the pride of life, there are new temptations around the quarter, and elders must put to death the flesh just like any other Christian. And a powerful ally for elders in the battle to put to death the flesh is a godly fear of destroying your reputation humiliating your family, losing your privilege to lead and teach, and bringing shame on the name of Christ. Fear is not the best motivator. Love does cast out fear and replaces it as the supreme motivator in our lives. But in seasons of life or in a moment of temptation when our love feels cold, godly fear can guard you from destroying yourself on the rocks of foolishness. This is the godly fear that Paul is speaking of. If your elders know without a shadow of a doubt that this church will carry out public rebuke for disqualifying sin, it will guard them in moments of weakness and may spare our church from ever having to experience the pain of this process. Amen. Minister to the elders by rebuking sinning elders in the presence of all. I'm out of time this morning, but in closing, I'd like to read verse 21 with you, which we'll come back to in detail next time. In verse 21, Paul says to Timothy, to the church in Ephesus, and he says to all of us, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Simply put, heaven is watching us. To see how we will live with one another as the family of God here on earth. 
What will we do with the grace, gifts, and rules that God has given us? Will we follow Him and rejoice in His way? Or will we make our own way, going off the path, robbing the laborer of his wages, gossiping about one another, having favorites, or overlooking sin? Heaven is watching what will we do with these few days we have on this earth? Will we, want, we will one day stand in front of these heavenly witnesses and give account for how we lived. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You again for Your Word. I thank You that we don't have to shy away from it and that we don't have to try and, and round off the sharp corners of the Word of God. I pray that in each one of our lives, no matter who we are, that we would humble ourselves before Your Word. That we would look at Your Word and study Your Word and examine the Word to see if these things be so. And if they are true, then may we submit ourselves and follow You. Lord, would You bless our local church? It is, it is an exciting thing to imagine the day when we get to appoint elders in this local church and then get to encourage them as they seek to lead and teach. I pray that you would be maturing us for that day. And Lord, may it come quickly for your glory, for the health of this church, and so that our church would be a light set on the hill in George so others can see your glory and how good the name of Jesus is. In His name, amen.